Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming this evening. And uh, to begin with, I'd like to pay tribute to Daisy, to Alan Beveridge, and to colleagues here in the Royal College of Physicians for putting on the Moonstruck exhibition. Some of you will have had the opportunity of having a look at the exhibition as you were coming in. If you didn't, come back another time and spend some time with the exhibits. And this evening you've had two exhibitions for the price of one, and I was delighted that um, colleagues from the um, uh, National Records Office, uh, Justin Grant and uh, Professor uh, Rab Houston, uh, have allowed us to use their prisoner or patient's um, material that's uh, out in the foyer. This came from an exhibition put on by National Records Scotland in the autumn, and the themes very much complement um, the themes of this evening. Uh, in my work as a forensic psychiatrist, um, one of the things that people ask me is, are the phenomena that you're dealing with new phenomena? Is the problem of a mother who kills her child while mentally unwell a phenomenon of the 21st century or the 20th century? Something that's evident from the stories of um, uh, Elizabeth Brown outside and um, from others is that this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that society generally has had to deal with for as long as we've had the written record. And in that, there is a fascinating story that we're going to explore this evening. I don't know how many of you have walked the John Muir Way. Uh, the John Muir Way is one of our favourite New Year walks. And uh, I was debating with colleagues uh, how long it is into January that you can still wish people a happy New Year. Um, we decided that it was okay until Burns Night. <laughs> the thing I particularly like about this section of the John Muir Way is that it has this bench. And this bench faces clearly two different ways, and it reminds me of the uh, Greek god Janus looking to the past and looking to the future as we pause for a moment in the present. And that's very much what these exhibitions do for us this evening. We have the opportunity not only of looking at the past, but also looking at the future. And the Moonstruck exhibition contains um, contributions from various colleagues about the future of psychiatry and not simply uh, the past. It also contains images that I'm very familiar with as a student of the history of psychiatry. Um, this gentleman uh, is uh, sometimes known as William Norris uh, in illustrations. In fact, they got his name wrong. His name was James Norris. And he was an American mariner who had seriously committed an act of violence against one of the attendants at the hospital where he was incarcerated, the oldest bespoke psychiatric hospital in the British Isles, uh, the Bethlehem Hospital, Hospital, the Royal Bethlehem Hospital, Bedlam in London. And he had been nursed in isolation for 10 years or so, and he had this special metal harness made for him. It was because of pamphlets of his situation that parliamentarians came to visit him and he was eventually given uh, more humane treatment. And it was his case and cases like it that led to various different reforms in mental health care in the 19th century. Another thing to look to the past on in the exhibition is, uh, uh, is this classic textbook that we... Um, uh, celebrate in the history of psychiatry the anatomy of melancholy and sometimes we'll use the word melancholy as a slightly 
uh, archaic term to describe depression. We might describe somebody as melancholic. But of course it gives a clue to something much more historic. The black bile described in Hippocratic writings to describe the imbalance that was thought to lead to various different ailments. And um, last year I was very pleased to take part in a conference at the Royal College of Psychiatrists in London. Here's our president, Wendy Byrne, which was also hosted by the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners. And the theme for that conference was social prescribing, trying to find ways of improving our health, which isn't perhaps in a way traditionally identified in medicine. And we were particularly lucky that the Royal College of Psychiatrists' royal patron, Prince Charles, uh, did a, a, a video message uh, for us on that occasion. And we are lucky in Scotland because much of what Prince Charles has uh, uh, talked about in terms of well-being, he's put into practice only uh, an hour and a half down the road at Dumfries House near Cumnock. These are the gardens of Dumfries House where um, the Wellbeing Centre works in collaboration with local GPs. If you are unwell, if you are unbalanced in terms of your work-life balance, then you might be prescribed um, uh, gardening in these fabulous uh, surroundings. Another uh, picture that particularly struck me in the Moonstruck exhibition uh, was uh, this um, uh, anatomy of the bottom of the brain by Willis in 1664. This is because um, all of the medical graduates in the room will immediately remember uh, having to remember the uh, vessels that are part of this vascular system at the base of the brain. Uh, the way that we were taught at uh, university was to imagine it as a spider. I remember the anatomy professor coming and telling me there is a spider that lives at the bottom of the brain and you need to remember all his legs. <coughs> the thing I wanted to draw out from that is that in certain aspects there are constants, anatomy being one of the constants in medicine. And another fabulous exhibition that I would encourage you to go to and see, if you haven't already done so, is at the Queen's Gallery, uh, just by Holyrood. And there, there are the, uh, the notebooks from Leonardo da Vinci. Never meant to be published. These were his sketches, his workings out. And um, they feature a fabulous detail um, um, from, uh, from the master. And one of the interesting things there is a diagram of the liver and Leonardo da Vinci's attempt to understand the function of the liver. And a contemporary uh, expert in the liver gives commentary on this saying he did pretty well considering he was starting from scratch. And of course we have the advantage that we're not starting from scratch. We have all of this experience going before us. And in the phenomena of forensic psychiatry, we're not starting from scratch. We have the experience of um, uh, events that have gone on, as I said before, throughout the course of history. I wonder if this rings a bell with anyone in the audience. Uh, these are a couple of the sterling heads, the oak carvings that uh, have been reproduced and placed on the ceiling of the throne room in the royal suite at Stirling Castle. Now, the Stirling heads were meant to impress people. They have various dignitaries, various uh, figures from history, and so on and so forth. But there is one character in the Stirling heads that features more frequently than any other character. And it's the Greek mythological figure of Heracles, perhaps better known by his Roman name of Hercules. And uh, I think there may be one or two members of my uh, master's class in criminology here this evening, and we were thinking about 
um, uh, Hercules this morning, and I was asking them what they could remember of the Hercules story. And they could remember the tasks, the burdens that Hercules had to face. But what we sometimes forget was why did he have to go and perform these atoning tasks? Uh, the story of Hercules is, of course, the story of the evil stepmother. And he had quite a stepmother um, in Hera. Uh, Zeus's wife, who was a bit peeved that uh, Zeus had had a child on the side. And she thought about punishing Heracles. Heracles, after all, had already had his name changed to Heracles to try and assuage her uh, bitterness uh, towards him. Uh, that hadn't really worked. And what um, um, Hera made him do was to misidentify his children, his wife, as enemies who were about to kill him. He was a man of action. If an enemy was about to kill him, he was going to get in there first. And he killed his wife and his children. Now, looking back with the eye of a 21st century forensic psychiatrist, I might say that sounds awful like delusional misinterpretation. Something that occurs today where somebody will have false beliefs that the people around them are not the people that they say they are. And occasionally, they may act on those false beliefs. But as ancient as the story of Hercules, there were um, uh, accounts of people became, becoming deranged and doing extraordinary things. One of the things I particularly like about the prisoner or patient exhibition is the treatments described in the um, uh, displays outside. And one of them is purgatives. In the 19th century, purgatives were used as a treatment for mental disorder. Uh, this is a picture from my own garden where, um, uh, I think partly because of the historical link, I like to grow some hellebore. And part of Hercules' treatment, Heracles' treatment, was treatment with hellebore. He was purged to try and uh, treat his mental condition. It's to the Greek as well and to the title of the talk this evening that I'll turn to next. Uh, uh, Plato um, would have certainly been brought up in the tradition of Greek mythology and of Heracles. And one of the um, most reproduced works of Plato to this day are his ideal idealistic laws for this fictional um, country of uh, Magnesia, which would be uh, ruled over by philosopher kings. And in various um, textbooks of psychiatry, there'll be perhaps some reference to Plato, that Plato perhaps suggested some early form of civil detention for people with mental disorder, and some mysterious process then took place by which this was adopted in uh, perhaps Roman times. And other textbooks would say that's far too simplistic. There is no evidence that anything that Plato wrote about laws in relation to mental disorder ever took place in ancient Athens. And they would be absolutely correct. But Plato does think about the situation of somebody being mentally unwell and, um, uh, and committing uh, some of the most serious uh, crimes. First of all, he links mental unwellness with the state of advanced senility or the state of somebody being a young child. And in his utopian laws, he suggests that if somebody is found in such a state and that it is proved that um, uh, that is the case, then they're not to be treated in the same way. In Plato's idealistic laws, and we know this in terms of surviving writing from Athens, um, crime and punishment were dealt with in, in two different sections. Somebody would have to pay recompense for the damages caused in a criminal act, and then some broader penalty for the pollution caused 
by um, uh, the stain on the state, on his fellow people, by the criminal act. For Plato, if somebody killed somebody else whilst mentally unwell, um, there would still be the fine for the compensation. But in terms of the punishment, which would normally, presumably, have been uh, for somebody to give up their own life, um, exile for a year was given. It wasn't a complete insanity defence, if you like, but it was treating somebody very differently. How does that then relate to what came next? It's very easy to make sweeping statements in this area if we're giving a brief talk, Um, but I think it is uh, reasonable to suggest that this gentleman, uh, a rather youthful bust, but uh, this is the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. And I think it's reasonable to suggest that Marcus Aurelius would have been influenced by Plato. In Marcus Aurelius's writings, he quotes several of the Greek philosophers, but none are quoted so frequently as Plato. And something very interesting happens with Marcus Aurelius now. I'm aware that there may be a spectrum of, of people in the room, and if you're not familiar with who Marcus Aurelius is, um, cast your mind to the film Gladiator. This is Richard Harris, okay? And um, Marcus Aurelius wanted to bring back something of the Roman Republic to um, uh, the Roman Empire, and he made the point of ruling with his brother as joint emperors, just like the joint consuls of old. And... um, Unfortunately, he made the mistake of, after his brother died, ruling with his feckless son, Commodus. So, in, uh, in that regard, um, the film was ac- accurate, but that's about as far as the film was accurate. Marcus Aurelius had a big problem, and we'll come on to that big problem in just a moment. But before I do, I just wanted to pause and mention the Roman punishment for the most dreadful crime they could think of. The most dreadful crime to a Roman was to disrupt the family order, to kill a family member, a father or a mother. And Cicero, we have to thank, for spelling out exactly what was to be done with a parasite perpetrator. According to the custom of our ancestors, the punishment instituted was that the parasite is flogged with blood-coloured rocks, sewn up in a sack with a dog, a dunghill cock, a viper and a monkey, and the sack is thrown into the depths of the sea. We don't actually get this punishment because this menagerie of animals meant something that we don't understand now. It would have had uh, significance, religious significance uh, at the time. Sufficient to say that there was a dread punishment for a dread crime. And the problem that Marcus Aurelius had, at this time he was ruling with Fetcher's son Commodus, so I'm going to attribute the um, authorship of this letter to him, is that an official in North Africa who was known to have mental health problems had killed his mother. If you have ascertained that Alias Priscus was so ends that he is permanently unwell and thus was incapable of reasoning when he killed his mother and did not kill her with the pretense of being unwell, you need not concern yourself with the question of how he should be punished. For furens itself is punishment enough. Now, most commonly, this translation uses the word madness, but I think the word madness rather misses the point. Furens was the term used by the Romans at the time. And a better translation to madness would be bedevilment, possession. It referred to the Furies who would come up from the underworld and pursue those who had spilt blood, driving people to suicide and desperation. Furens. And indeed, Cicero wrote about different categories 
of mental disorder. He talks about melancholia using the actual Greek term in his writing. But he also talks about furens in relation to Greek mythology and those situations where people would misidentify others, just like um, Heracles. Cicero also talks about insania, from which we get insane, in different terms. For Cicero, uh, insania was a lesser form of mental disturbance, more akin to mental unsoundness or somebody who made poor moral judgments. Cicero wrote that anyone could be subject to furens, but only the, uh, uh, those with poor moral background um, could um, have insania. Even though Alias Priscus may have been found not guilty of killing his mother because of his mental disorder, uh, Marcus Aurelius goes on to say that at the same time he should be kept in close custody. If you think it advisable, kept in chains. And this appears to be an odd juxtaposition. At the one hand, the emperor, uh, the deified emperor himself, has said, This man is not to be punished. In the next sentence, he's saying he should be kept in chains. And this change need not be done in way of punishment so much as for his neighbour's safety and security. Here we have, from the earliest of times, an argument for the confinement of somebody with mental health problems and a history of violence for public safety. And I wonder how comforting it would have been to Alias Priscus as he was chained and restrained to know that that wasn't being done in the name of punishment. Marcus Aurelius goes on, though, um, and questions, well, who was supposed to be looking after Alias Priscus? If people knew that he had mental health problems and was um, subject to uh, doing uh, various actions that were um, uh, problematic, who was supposed to be looking after him at the time? Uh, inquiry should be made about the keepers of alias Priscus to see why they didn't do their job properly and to see if any blame should be attached to them. Now, for the psychiatrists in the room, this will be very familiar, particularly in England, where there are still independent inquiries. If a patient that you've been treating goes and kills somebody else, you are subject to an inquiry. Uh, the object of keepers of the insane is not merely to stop them from harming themselves, but from destroying others. And if this happens, there is some justification for casting the blame for it on those who are somewhat negligent in their duties. Uh, that was the case in 280 in the Christian era. It's very much the case now. We know about the Alias Priscus letter because it's contained within this encyclopedia of Roman law that the Emperor Justinian asked to be made up. The Emperor Justinian was not based in Rome. He was in Byzantium. By this time, Italy had been taken over by invading tribes from the north. In fact, the language was Greek, and... Um, although he asked for this, uh, this compendium of Roman law to be made up, it was partly to save it even at that time, because most of the lawyers there were using Greek day-to-day -day and not Latin. And it's by sheer damn luck that a copy of that was retained in Pisa and was rediscovered in the Middle Ages and became the object of study uh, at Bologna uh, University. But it's not the only place that the Marcus Aurelius letter is mentioned. In volume four, a later commentary is also contained in this encyclopedia of the law by a chap called Modestinus. An infant or a madman who kills a man is not liable under the Lex Cornelia, that's the, that's the, the murder law that ends you up in a sack, 
The one being protected by the innocence of his intent, the other is excused by the misfortune of his condition. This idea that mental disorder is punishment in itself. And this is relevant in the development of the insanity defence in England, which can be traced back to a medieval canon lawyer, Henry de Bracton. And the problem with Henry de Bracton's understanding of Roman law is that he didn't have volume one. He only had volume four. And he only had the Modestinus. And little did he know that was going to cause confusion for another thousand years. Not only that, but there was a spelling mistake in the version that he got. The word um, F-A-T-I was substituted with F-A-C-T-I. And so for Henry de Bracton, he came up with one is protected by the innocence of his design, the other by the misfortune of his deed, which doesn't make sense. And um, really, in the insanity defence in England has never um, uh, got over it. Um, uh, one of my mentors at the Institute of Criminology at University of Cambridge uh, was Professor Nigel Walker, who is sadly no longer with us, um, and uh, a son of Edinburgh as well. There is no greater authority about the insanity defence in uh, these islands uh, as Nigel Walker. But even as late as the 1990s, uh, Nigel was writing uh, about how uh, the origin of the insanity defence in England was Modestinus. And he posed the question, where did Modestinus get it from? We will never know. And I, I don't know whether, uh, whether Nigel ever found out about the Marcus Aurelius letter. For some reason, the whole story was lost in the dialogue about the insanity defence in the English-speaking world. It was never lost in the continental world. If you were to speak to somebody in Italy, in Germany, in Holland, in France, they would know all about it. And it's curious how these uh, lacunae of knowledge can occur. Um, and another link I have to, uh, uh, to Nigel, uh, shared with Bruce Ritson, who's uh, in the audience this evening, is that we all had the, um, um, uh, the uh, uh, interesting experience, uh, a blessing and a curse at times, of going to a school which is just at the bottom of Hanover Street, Edinburgh Academy. And this is a picture um, from the whole of the Edinburgh Academy of Sir Walter Scott, who um, was one of the founders of the school. And Sir Walter Scott liked a good story. And one of his most famous stories was The Bride of uh, Lamamur. And in The Bride of Lamamur, we have a story of mental disorder and... Um, awful consequences. Loosely Ashton falls in love with the disgraced Edgar, whose estates have just been usurped by her ambitious father. But she's bullied into marrying a much better match, Francis. There's a wedding party, and she is in the bridal chamber with Francis, and she stabs him. She then descends into mental illness and dies. Blood everywhere, Tragedy, it was a bestseller. <laughs> Not only was it bestseller, but this is, of course, is the inspiration for Donizetti's Lucia de Lamamur, uh, which was uh, itself only published um, a few years after Scott's um, novel. The interesting thing is that Scott got the story from his mother and uh, uh, another member of the family, and it was based on fact. And the real story of, the, uh, of Lucy Ashton was that it was based um, not only on fact, but somebody who has a rather large role in the history of uh, uh, Scottish law. It was based on uh, a woman called Janet Dalrymple, who was the daughter of James Dalrymple, 
uh, the first Viscount of Stair. And any lawyers in the room will think of as this as one of the fathers of Scots law. Uh, the current uh, historical society that maintains uh, various publications and meetings about Scots law is called the Stair Society. And Janet, we know, was secretly engaged to a man called Archibald, Lord Rutherford, but this was an unsuitable um, match, he was the wrong politics, and she instead married a David Dunbar uh, to Baldwin Castle in August 1669, and we know that she died on the 12th of September 1669, shortly afterwards. What happened in the intervening time is subject to a great deal of conjecture. Um, to begin with, Scott was rather vague, purposely vague about who he was talking about, but uh, within a short period of time, uh, confirmed it was all about Janet Dalrymple. And uh, in this edition of um, his work, there's a rather nice reproduction of the marriage certificate of Janet Dalrymple. There are no fewer than four different versions of the legend, some of which in, um, agree with Scott's narrative of events, others that her, her spurned lover hid in the chimney well and attacked her um, uh, bridegroom. And the most uh, interesting version was that it was all to do with witchcraft, and witches were a big thing at that time. Uh, intriguingly, there was correspondence with Samuel Pepys, in 1700, um, a tragic case of witchcraft and melancholy involving Lord Stair was the subject of the correspondence. And that in itself is of particular interest because in Scotland we had a master witch catcher. Uh, the other great lawyer of the age was George uh, Mackenzie of Rose Hall. And uh, he's famous for various different things, mostly killing covenanters in Greyfriars churchyard and burning witches. But it seems that mental disorder brought out a more merciful side of him. At about the same time as uh, Janet Dalrymple is uh, getting married, he is thinking about the laws and customs of the criminal law in Scotland. And in his writings, we see something rather familiar, something closer to the Marcus Aurelius letter than was going on um, in uh, English legal writings at the time. He likened the responsibility of those who he termed furious, he used uh, that uh, Latin word again, uh, to children, that um, the state of being mentally unwell was punishment in itself, and that they should not be the object of punishment. And Mackenzie was influenced by um, uh, the jus commune, the common law. And we may be familiar with the idea of common law being that, um, uh, that opus of law from judgments through the ages. And when the Court of Session was established in Scotland one of the principles of Scots law was to follow the common law. But it wasn't the common law of England. It was the common law of Europe, this use commune. And Mackenzie's writings, in turn, came from a, uh, a Dutch writer, Anton Matthäus, and they were much closer to the Marcus Aurelius um, idea of what an insanity defence should be all, all about. And other research shows how influential the Marcus Aurelius take on insanity uh, was. As recently as the Middle Ages in Venice, it was being quoted in legal trials of those with mental disorder accused of, uh, of murder. The next case I'm going to touch on is the case of Sir Archibald Kinloch, a uh, baronet in Scotland, and although he has the term sir, 
as you will hear in a moment, he didn't get much enjoyment out of the title. He was the second son of Sir David Kinloch. He'd served in the army, rose to the rank of major, served in various places, including St. Lucia. And in St. Lucia, he's documented to have suffered from St. Lucia's fever. What was St. Lucia's fever? Well, I think of uh, a contender for that is dengue fever. And in dengue fever, people can have post... Um, uh, they can suffer from inflammation of the brain, encephalopathy, and have a post-encephalitic pattern of symptoms. And that was the case with Archibald Kinloch. He had periods of being mentally unwell, and he had been subject to detention in the institution nicknamed Edinburgh's Bedlam. And you may have passed Edinburgh's Bedlam, you may have even seen the word and not recognised what you were seeing. Because it's a Bristow place. The Bedlam Theatre sits on the, uh, on the location of where Edinburgh had uh, a house for people who are mentally unwell right up until the beginning of the 19th century. It was housed in Darien House. And that might uh, ring a bell. The Darien Adventure, how... Everyone who had a bit of money in Scotland would invest in our great colony in Panama and what a disaster that turned out to be. And of course the people who invested in Darien House were left with an embarrassment and the embarrassment was a great big flash corporate headquarters in Edinburgh, Darien House. What are we going to do with it? We'll turn it into an asylum for people with mental health problems. There were other examples of what was going on with Kinloch. It was documented in 1789, he cut his hand while travelling through the grass market in Edinburgh with a pocket knife, and he was attended by a, a Dr William Farquharson, who was both a member of the college here and was also sometime president of the Royal College of Surgeons down the road, and he was found to be deranged. In 1794, he spent a year in the jail in Hattington, after attacking his brother Francis. And on the 15th of April 1795, um, some dreadful things happened. Archibald's father had recently died, and there was tension over the inheritance. His brother, now Sir Francis, had burned various papers that he thought should be just done away with, but Archibald felt that he was trying to hide um, elements of uh, legitimate uh, inheritance from him and, and burn the proof. And there was a, uh, a convivial dinner on the 14th of April between Francis and Archibald and various um, other people. But, uh, and they, they have a good time. They um, uh, 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 retire to bed at about 3 o'clock in the morning. But in the night... Archibald comes down with two loaded pistols and shoots his brother in the chest. He's attended by another fellow of this college, Francis Home, but really there's nothing much that can be done. Um, interestingly, there's an account that Archibald was placed in a straitjacket, which happened to be in the house. Now, I don't know about what you have in your attic but I think it's rather telling that they had one handy. Francis died 44 hours later and made this deathbed plea for mercy. He asked for the authorities not to be called to um, take his brother away. He expressed deep regret for how his brother had behaved and named no blame on his shoulders. His brother was taken again to Haddington Jail and from there to the toll booth in Edinburgh, uh, the old prison on the Royal Mile that was demolished in the mid-19th century. And we know a lot about what then happened because his trial is reproduced in a pamphlet which um, gives, uh, as close as we can ascertain, a word-by-word, blow-by-blow um, -blow account of what was said. And... Uh, Archibald Kinloch was fortunate to have a rather talented defence advocate, Baron Hume. 
Not the David Hume that we rub his toe on at the lawn market now, but his nephew, who was a leading lawyer of the day. And Hume quotes Mackenzie's account of the insanity defence at length, and the jury finds Kinlock as insane and not guilty. Now, uh, I... um, uh, I trust that many of you will go and check some of my facts on Wikipedia later. Um, I would. Uh, and I caution you that Wikipedia has this element wrong. Kinlock is found not guilty. But just like Marcus Aurelius saying that Alias Priscus should be kept in chains, they say we don't like the idea that he should be let loose. We don't want him firing off pistols in people's chests again. The court has a duty to protect. We don't like the thought of him going to that place, Darien House. But they say, if there's a friend or a person uh, available under a penalty of £10,000 to keep him safe, he will be released into their custody. And Dr. David, uh, Dr. Farquharson then steps forward and looks after Kinloch. And uh, the reason why I've got a picture of the World's End pub there was that's where he looked after him. Not in the pub, but in World's End Close. And where they went for about five years until Archibald Kinloch's death is unclear, but it appears that Dr. Farquharson um, had a, uh, a, a, a great interest in the case and took personal responsibility for him at some time. Falkerson also crops up in another place, and you'll see in the Moonstruck exhibition some information about Royal Edinburgh Hospital, and Falkerson in uh, uh, the early part of the 19th century gave five guineas for the establishment of a better uh, mental health hospital here in Edinburgh. So Hume tries to update Mackenzie in his own textbook, on the um, uh, laws of Scotland. And uh, in it, he very much follows what Mackenzie has said, but he tries to use more modern language. He talks about alienation of reason. Looking back today, that feels very antiquated. But at the time, that was what a psychiatrist would be described as, an alienist. This was the terminology of the day. The trouble for forensic psychiatrists was it was the terminology that we were having to use up until about eight years ago when the law changed. And we had to stand up in court and say whether somebody uh, had or did not have complete alienation of reason in relation to a particular criminal act. And unless we had some notion of where it came from, we could tie ourselves up in knots. But what of diminished responsibility? If you were to look at that Wikipedia article, you will see a claim that the Kinloch case was somehow important in the law of diminished responsibility. Uh, And it wasn't. Diminished responsibility comes from a different place. And Mackenzie himself suggested that there may be degrees of mental derangement beyond the total mental derangement that excuses somebody but degrees of mental derangement but the suggestion by uh, Mackenzie and also later by Hume was that those degrees of mental derangement should be dealt with by the prosecutor laying less serious charges by mercy to be shown at the time of sentencing Back to New Year. I don't know if anyone is here from Stonehaven. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Stonehaven knows how to celebrate Hogmanay. Have you seen this? Excellent. Well, Stonehaven is where diminished responsibility comes from. Okay? <laughs> Not only do we know the location, but we know the day as well. Hogmanay, 1866. And they had um, uh, uh, another member of the minor gentry, Laird Dingwall, also a veteran from the army, said to have suffered sunstroke and epilepsy 
and he'd had lots of treatment for alcoholism. He was not thought to be certifiable, but was described as weak-minded, wayward, and eccentric. His normal regime was one glass of whiskey before each meal. And on Hogmanay, 1886, he was living in lodgings in Stonehaven with his wife, and he slipped out, drank six more glasses of whiskey by way of Hogmanay hospitality. He returned home with a bottle of whiskey, which his wife tried to hide. While she slept, he stabbed her with a kitchen knife. And she survived, uh, like poor old uh, Francis Kinlock, for a period of time. And uh, she made a, a dying declaration that her husband was to be shown mercy. Things did not look favourable for um, uh, uh, her husband, however, because he had uh, Lord Dees as his judge, who was not comfortingly described as a hanging judge. <laughs> but, just like Mackenzie, mental disorder and these circumstances seemed to bring out a better side to him. He stressed that the, uh, the act of violence was unmedicated, that uh, when in his right mind he was described as habitually kind, there was only one stab wound. Lawyers are obsessed by the number of stab wounds. I'm always asked about the significance of the number of stab wounds. Well, they were very pleased there was only one. <laughs> and the long and the short of it was that Dingwall was found guilty of culpable homicide, that lesser degree of homicide in Scotland, uh, what would be described as manslaughter in England, and the way that Dees puts it was murder with extenuating circumstances. And it caught on. This lesser degree of mental disturbance bringing about the possibility of somebody being convicted of culpable homicide instead of murder became very popular. And all sorts of different conditions uh, were taken as satisfying this interesting new thing. Mental unsoundness, uh, brooding over a wife's unfaithfulness. And eventually in 1909 the term diminished responsibility was used. And again, just like Hume's uh, alienation of reason, the, the savage judgment was one as a forensic psychiatrist I had to reference whenever I assess somebody accused of murder. And it came from the death of Wilhelmina uh, uh, Grierson in 1922, just down the road in, uh, in Leith. And this was a case whereby um, clearly the court were not persuaded there were extenuating circumstances and were not having it. Not particularly helped by uh, the account that the accused said, if you don't hold your tongue, I'll cut your head off. And so Lord Ulness, in that particular case, came up with these tests for diminished responsibility, which really survived uh, up until very recently an abnormality of mind, something far wrong with the accused, um, a state of mind bordering on but not amounting to insanity. But despite Savage's uh, criteria, uh, the death penalty really went out of fashion in the first part of the 19th century. If not by diminished responsibility, then pleas of mercy after somebody was convicted of a murder. As late as the 1950s, Nigel Walker, who was then working in the Scottish office, would talk about phoning up Douglas Inch, the forensic psychiatrist in Glasgow, to do the necessary in terms of a mitigatory plea to commute a death sentence to life imprisonment. But things were to change after World War II there was a stiffening of the approach to diminished responsibility. In HMA versus Braithwaite, 1945, it will not suffice in law for the purpose of this defence merely to show an accused person has a very short temper. Things were beginning to tighten up. And they really tightened up in the case of Patrick Carragher. Um, and perhaps there's a clue in his nickname, the Fiend of the Gorbals. 
uh, and he tried a diminished responsibility uh, defence. He'd been a well-known character in the Glasgow Razor Gangs, and he'd been convicted of the culpable homicide in 1934 of a soldier and served three years. In November 45, he killed another young soldier, and, um, uh, and he killed him with uh, a sharpened chisel that he had uh, about him on his purpose for self-defense. And uh, here we have a scene of crime photo with sand over the blood on the cobbles. And he was initially tried in the North Court in uh, Glasgow. Uh, I've given evidence in that court. It hasn't changed much. And at the trial, there was a real trial of the experts. Uh, Dr. McNiven and a Professor Blythe on the right here, they said this man should get diminished because of this new medical concept we've been reading all about called psychopathy. And they had read Sir David Henderson's book on psychopathic states, published uh, uh, not long before. Professor Sir David Henderson, one of the fathers of Scottish uh, psychiatry, also a previous president of the Royal College of Physicians here, and I think this portrait may be hanging next door. Um, in the original trial, Lord Russell said, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's a bit disturbing to the lieges, I think, to feel that 2% of the population in our midst, who, because they have lower than normal self-control, perceptions of social standards, ability to adapt themselves to their environment, are people who are only partially accountable to the law for their activities. There was a feeling that psychiatry had gone too far and that the law need to pull things back. So Lord Russell, after the jury had only deliberated for 20 minutes, put on a black cap on top of his wig and declared um, that uh, Patrick Carragher was to be taken away to a place of execu execution. There was an automatic appeal to the High Court, uh, uh, the High Court here in Edinburgh. Again, this hasn't changed very much in the intervening years. And there, Lord Justice General Normand reviewed the case and uh, examined whether there were any uh, uh, alternatives and he said the court has a duty to see that trial by judge and jury according to law is not subordinated to medical theory in this instance much of the evidence given by witnesses is to my mind descriptive rather of a typical criminal than a person of the quality the law has hitherto regarded as being possessed of diminished responsibility so in the Carragher case this expanding notion of diminished responsibility was pulled back. Diminished responsibility as a concept, though, proved to be rather enduring. And perhaps the most interesting thing about it was that it was adopted in English law, and it was uh, taken over in the 1957 Homicide Act in England and Wales. And in England, the defence then had a life of its own, and came to be used on a more uh, broad set of circumstances than was the case in Scotland. And things were to change in Scotland. And now we're coming to much more recent history. Um, I, I'm happy to say that I've had no privileged information about the Galbraith case, um, where um, uh, Galbraith uh, killed her husband, a policeman, and shot him, called the police, and said, uh, burglars have come into the house uh, and something dreadful has happened. I'm also pleased to say that having shown you a lot of pictures of white men, <laughs> at least we can restore the balance to a certain degree. Uh, Lady Smith and Lady Cosgrove were involved in the um, Galbraith judgment. And in, in a sense... They felt that those restrictions that go all the way back to Carragher and Savage had gone too far, that there needed to be a broader concept of what diminished responsibility was, that it needn't simply even be a medical qualifying condition, just one that was appreciated by the relevant science. And in Galbraith's case, the relevant science was social science, 
and it was put forward that because she had been subject to domestic abuse, that was sufficient to allow the consideration of diminished responsibility in her circumstances. Diminished responsibility, yes, but still quite a substantial sentence. By, t by the mid-2000s, though, we had the Galbraith case, we had lots of archaic language dating back several hundred years, and the Scottish Law Commission examined both insanity and diminished responsibility um, afresh. It's slightly disappointing that the Scottish Law Commission said that both defences started with David Hume. I think, if nothing else, I've persuaded you there is a slightly longer heritage to diminished responsibility and insanity. But the 2010 Act is the Act that we uh, live with today. Interestingly, there is an exclusion to what was previously known as the insanity defence, and that comes from the Carragher case. Um, if you have a personality disorder, then you cannot be found not criminally responsible for your actions. Where CARA has been partly reversed is that you can use personality disorder for the defence of diminished responsibility. I started um, this evening with Hercules, and I'd like to return to um, things Greek as we close. If Heracles, to give him his proper title, is perhaps the first character we know of where there is mental disorder and homicide, Orestes, uh, um, particularly as described by the Greek playwright Aeschylus, is the story of the first courtroom drama. Orestes kills his mother Clytemestra in revenge for Clytemestra killing her husband Agamemnon. She had grounds. Agamemnon had, after all, killed her first husband, raped her, murdered their child Epiphagia in order to get uh, favourable winds to take him to Troy and also had brought back a, uh, a, a younger model with him as a trophy of war. So Clytemestra might be said to have motive in uh, several uh, areas. Oh, and it, she was also having an affair with his cousin. Um, but our hero, Orestes, is in a pickle because he has crossed the line. He has killed his mother for avenging his father's death. In some interpretations, this could also be taken as experiencing auditory hallucinations because he's egged on by the voice of Apollo. And it's a courtroom drama, presided over by Athena herself. And the question is, is Orestes guilty of the murder of his mother or not? Or do all these circumstances uh, extenuate his guilt? And they vote. The Athenian court votes. And it's a tied jury. Athena herself has to give a casting vote. And, was the tradition, the casting vote in such circumstances was always for mercy. In the Robert Icke interpretation of the Oresteia, uh, which was so um, uh, movingly uh, put together recently, the final scene is the acquitted Orestes standing before the audience, completely bewildered. All the lawyers have cleared off. He's left there having been acquitted. But he turns to the audience and says, well, what do I do next? I've killed my mother. My life is in ruins. What on earth shall I do? For me, that rather encapsulates what forensic psychiatry is really about. Yes, we have a role in terms of advising the court of the relationship between mental disorder and a criminal act, but our relationship with our patients goes on many years after that. The most viable thing I have as a practitioner is relationships with patients that go back 20, 25 years. Some of them start 
in a police station somewhere where the person hasn't cleaned up after the act of violence that has brought them into custody. Imagine how you would rebuild your life if, through no um, bad decision of your own, you become unwell and commit the most dreadful of acts. How do you then live on? How do you rebuild your life? How do you go on a journey of recovery? At its best, forensic psychiatry is about helping people in those journeys of recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.